what with creative margins and everything. Um, we finally have realized you should do it by word count rather than page count. Um, okay, so book six of the Fairy Queen. Um, what do you think? So, lot, okay, um, can you get a coherent view of courtesy out of book six of the Fairy Queen? Um, how does courtesy work? What is, um, why is the blatant beast essentially the villain in book six? <laughs> You look like you're just about to raise your hand, Tony. Yeah, you were. No, I feel sure. Why do you think? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyone? Steve? Well, in the time that he's pursuing the blatant beast, he's not pursuing, like, courteous acts to all the people he encounters. Okay, Calidor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, say more. Um, well, he... Spencer seems to kind of feel like he's letting down the reader in all of these divergences. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, those encounters are the ones that really give you a portrait of him as a courteous knight. Okay, so, um, so is it that, where's the error in book six? Let's just say there's error throughout. Where's the error in book six? Uh, defining the blatant beast as the chief opponent. Okay, so defining the blatant beast as the chief opponent to courtesy would be the error. Um, okay, interesting. Why? So who is the chief opponent to courtesy, then? Uh, inaction. Negligence. Okay, inaction and negligence. All right. Um, interesting. Um, why? Well, say more about that. Not not you, anyone. Ben. Um I don't know I don't know if I'd say inaction and negligence are necessarily the sort of the opposition of courtesy. Um but I think there's I think there's something uh something definitely for um suggesting that the error is to pursue the blatant beast. I mean, if we compare, say, you know, the House of Holiness, House of Temperance, etc., etc., we have um, the fields, the shepherd's fields, mm -hmm. um, and for Calidor. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what about the hermit's house, though? For right, um, but but in that instance as well, uh, the case is not to pursue the blatant beast. The case is not to pursue danger or adventure or anything like that, but rather to sort of, you know, become whole within oneself. And then once that is achieved, it seems sort of like the aftermath is sort of inevitable that the blatant beast would be killed. And I mean, I think the mistake that we see in Timius uh, in immediately, I, I, what is what is the, the prideful woman's name? Uh, Mirabella. Mirabella. Um, the mistake that Timius makes in going after Mirabella's like captors or whatever uh, is that he he actively, you know, one hundred percent pricks forth essentially, you know, and, um, 
in the same way that he would have before, in the same way that he did the Blatant Beast. Um, you know, just uh, about, you know, a couple of cantos before that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it seems only by sort of pursuing the concept of courtesy within oneself can one defeat the lack of courtesy outside. Okay, so, yeah, Steve. No, I think that's done. All right, so let's talk about Mirabella. Do everyone remember her? Um, so what's her deal? Why is she in a book about courtesy? Do it is for her. Because she tells her own story, and that story is a, um, um, a telling one. It's a, it's a, a, it's a monetary one. Monetary, not monetary. Yeah. Because she's, um, she's a very good example of non-courteous behavior because she rejected lovers just for the hell of it and just to enjoy it. Okay, so, so let's, again, um, the very first thing that Spencer does in book six is to say that courtesy comes from the idea of court. That is, it's the way you behave in court. Um, but it's also, what else does court mean besides the place where the queen and her um, other, and the other aristocracy hang out and interact according to very fine forms together? What does Court mean as a verb. Yeah. Attempt to date or get. Yes. Attempt to date. Um, attempt to win. Yeah. Um, attempt to win the heart of. Um, so courtly love is um, one place that courtesy um, derives from. The idea of um, being a, a courtier is that when you that you always show courtesy to all those around you, um, and that you court the person that you're interested in, the woman that you're interested in, according to the rules of courtesy. There's, um, as you all know, there's, um, there are rules of courtesy in um, courtship. So Mirabella is a person who does, what, what's her relation then to courtesy? Courtesy in the sense of courting, of being courted. You just said it. Say it again. Um, in Mirabella's case, it's unfairly treating the one who's going to courting you. Okay, so that there's an obligation in courtship not only to court in a certain way, but to respond to courtship in a certain way. What does Mirabella do wrong? How is she unfair? Is she just supposed to say yes to any guy? Yeah. Um, and she's allowed to say no, but in the manner when she did it, her own, she said no for her own pleasure, and that is considered discourteous. All right, so how does she compare to Britomart, let's say? Or contrast with Britomart? Britomart's chastity is high minded. Um, but, you know, holy, essentially. And it, it is not lacking any humility or respect for others, whereas um, Mirabella's actions are out of despite for men 
in some, you know, I, whether she directly hates men or just um, hates men, I don't know, because they love her, she in some way is directly opposing uh, men, whereas Bredemar is just a an extreme proponent of a single man, perhaps. Okay. Um. Good, that's a good contrast. Yes. It's more disdain, too, that Mirabella has, that not only does she reject them, and you know she does, she does seem to despise them, but she doesn't care what happens to them so that they could be pining away into death, and it doesn't really matter to her. Mm-hmm. It's just significant. Okay, so what about similarities between them? Well, the obvious similarities, they say no <laughs> um, to people who are interested in them. What else is similar about them as characters? Well, I don't know that I would say Mirabella enjoys being wounded, but there is something in the, that as she's being led around, I mean, she's, she stops them from killing her captors, I mean, partly because she needs to do penance and sort of like Britomart um, fed her wound. I think there's nice. a, sort of the same action going on there. Okay, good. So um, there, there is... It's not so much she, enjo- she enjoys being wounded. It's a little bit hard also to see exactly what her penance is. Right. Um, that is, how is she supposed to, how is she supposed to um, do to others, um, save as many people as she's harmed? <laughs> um, and it's a little bit hard right. to see just how that would be. Because everyone who tries to save her ends up being harmed as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Sean, were you going to say something? No, okay. Um, how about compare to Guyon? Compared to Guyon in in um, the Cave of Mammon, do you see that comparison? Yeah. I mean, I think just kind of like Guyon enjoys saying no to temptation, and she seems to enjoy saying no to all of these suitors. There's like pleasure in the rejection of temptation. Okay, good. So that in in the same way that Guyon takes pleasure in rejecting. Um, and therefore kind of um, playing with the desirability that's tempting him. Um, courtesy, you could almost say, is um, a version of wealth, of money. Um, that is, it's an offer that's being made to you if you succumb. Um, and it's a much better kind of off- offer because it's not sheer materialism. But it's still an offer being made to figures so that... Um, that they might succumb to it. Um, and both Guyon, who we know does wrong this way, and Mirabella, um, what they do is they enjoy saying no. And they take pleasure out of saying no. And that turns out to be the sin that they're engaged in. The difference between those two things is that for Guyon, he's, whatever harm he does to Mammon by saying no, there's no sin in harming Mammon. That is what Guyon, like Guyon saying no to Mammon's temptation, Guyon isn't doing something that he should be punished for what he's done to Mammon. However, Mirabella is punished for saying no to people who act towards her in good faith, um, who are courting her because they actually love her. Um, so from the point of view of Mirabella and, and Guyon, they're both taking pleasure out of saying no, 
And so is Britomart. That, that links all three of them together. That is, Britomart likes looking but not touching. Um, Freud terms this, we didn't talk about this, but, but Freud actually has this as a major and fascinating category in his writing, the category of scopophilia. If any of you have read um, Visual Pleasure, Laura Mulvey's um, uh, Always Done in Feminist Film Classes essay, Visual Pleasure, um, that's an essay about scopophilia, love of looking. And the whole idea of love of looking is taking pleasure without succumbing and taking pleasure in a refusal to succumb. Look, but don't touch. Imagine touching, but don't touch. That's what Guyon does with the money. That's why Britta Mart is wounded by Gardante and why she looks into um, Venus Looking Glass to see Artigal. And to some extent, that's what, that's what Mirabella is doing also. Um, how is her punishment, which is to be punished by whom? To make others feel better and also to be punished by whom? Who are the two figures with her? Disdain and scorn. Despite is Orgoglu's brother. Um, disdain and scorn. Um, how is that punishment appropriate? Because that's what she did to them. Okay, so it's appropriate as, as, um, as uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How's the punishment, how's it an appropriate punishment? Um, ba okay, so basically, since we've talked about justice, now we can talk about how punishment should work in the Fairy Queen, which is that punishment should set right what's gone wrong. Um, that's the whole idea of punishment. It, this survives in our idea of the house of correction. Um, correction, a house of correction, is that it it um, it reverses the thing that's gone wrong and makes up for it. Um, so punishment should reverse what's gone wrong. Um, the bad version of that is the giant in um, Book Five of the Fairy Queen, who is trying to even everything out, as though the way to fix what's gone wrong is to make everything uniform. Um, but what we talked about last time was not that you make everything uniform, but that you make sure that over time every wrong is counteracted by a right that is symmetrical to it. Um, those of you who've read Dante know that this is the difference between Inferno and Purgatorio, that in Inferno the way punishment works is whatever you want you get more of. Um, and it turns out that because you've wanted the wrong thing, getting more of it is hell. Um, in Purgatorio, the way punishment works is whatever you did wrong, you now get the opposite of <coughs> so that you're corrected in what you've done wrong. Um, punishment in, um, in the fifth book of the Fairy Queen, Under Justice, will frequently be Inferno-like punishment. Whatever you've done wrong, um, you get more of. You're not, the, the wrongdoer isn't being corrected, but being destroyed. Um, however, in courteous punishment, it seems more like purgatorio. That seems to be what Mirabella is going through. Um, is she has to pay for what she's done, but then she will pay. And what we see frequently 
in um, book six as opposed to book five of the Fairy Queen are that the wrongdoers can be set right. People who do the wrong thing, not only the major knights, but everyone, or most everyone, in book six, six of the Fairy Queen. Some get their heads chopped off, but if they don't get their heads chopped off, they live better. They resolve to live a better life. They see what they've done wrong, and they do the opposite. And Mirabella is a good example of this. So why is it that scorn and disdain um, should be a way of getting her to be more courteous. Or let me ask this another way. How does scorn and disdain um, relate to the blatant beast? What does the blatant beast stand for? Scandal. Scandal. And what does scandal yield? Slander. Yeah. Um, and when you're slandered, how do people think, if people believe the slander, how do they feel about you? How do they treat you? Discourteously. Discourteously, Tony? With disdain and disdain. With scorn and disdain. With unearned dis- scorn and disdain. Um, so the blatant beast, when um, the blatant beast causes slander, um, the result is that good people are treated badly. Um, and um, what then is the proper way to handle the blatant beast? Not if you're Kalidor, who um, stops the blatant beast, but only for a little while. But in general, the blatant beast can't be stopped. The blatant beast will escape again. That's the very last thing we hear about the blatant beast, is that unlike the other villains, even Duessa, who is eventually executed, the blatant beast is immortal. Um, so how do you handle the blatant beast if the blatant beast is immortal? It's virtue and forthrightness and one other thing that, like, cure the venom of the blatant beast. Okay, good. And um, in real life, how do you handle it? Yeah. By ignoring it? By ignoring it. If people say you were born in Kenya... Um, it's probably not a good idea to spend all your time sputtering about how that's not true. Um, if you can turn it into a joke or otherwise ignore it, um, it may not stop the rumors, but that's the best you can do um, about it. So what's the, how's that related to courtesy? What's the definition of courtesy? How does Calidor, where is Calidor most courteous? Towards whom is Calidor most courteous? Yeah. Pastorella. Towards Pastorella, but he's courting her. Um, so he's most courteous in the courtly mode towards Pastorella. Um, who is his courtesy? Let's put, let's put it this way. When courtesy comes at a cost, and that is the point about courtesy, is that it comes at a cost. Um, otherwise, it's no big deal. Otherwise, it's just, how are you? Fine, how are you? Um, but when courtesy comes at a cost, you know, those bumper stickers they used to have, they don't have them anymore because I think they turned out to be wrong, but the bumper stickers were a little courtesy won't kill you. Um, very discourteous bumper stickers, um, if you think about it. Um, but what's the cost that you have to pay if you show a little courtesy on the mass pike? <laughs> you die? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. If, you, if you don't show courtesy, you die. That would be the point of, of road rage. 
Um, but why is a little? Why won't a little courtesy kill you? What are you doing instead? What won't kill you about showing a little courtesy? <laughs> I know. Would you like to see a card trick? What? <laughs> what? Is that the answer we're looking for? That is the answer <laughs> we're looking for. Why? Well, because he. Um, Cordon is his rival, but he continues to uh, be kind to him. And like when he's given the wreath, he's like, "Oh no, it must go to Cordon," right, and he exactly. gives it to Cordon instead. And so, even though he's his rival, he still um, treats him with fairness and kindness, and tries to make him look good in a sense, even though they're competing for the same uh, woman, which works in his favor because Cordon's a coward, so he just looks like a good guy. Yeah, but even if he wasn't a coward, it'd still make Calidor. Uh, the, the better man right. showing that off. Right. Yeah, it would make him the better man, but but not to the extent that it's planned, that wouldn't be right. Um, then that would be simply courtship. <laughs> but to the extent that it comes out of um, a natural willingness to show others, um, to do more for others than you demand that they do for you, that, that could be the definition, the ultimate definition of courtesy. Is a, is a willingness to do more for others um, than you demand they do for you. Always hold the door open for someone else. Never be the first person through the door. Um, and so a little courtesy won't kill you is basically, yes, yeah, so you'll be late, so what? Um, it's not going to kill you. And by showing that courtesy, you'd be, you're showing that you're willing to do the right thing, even if it costs you um, a chance to take the quiz on time. Um, so, so that kind of willingness to accept un inequitable amounts of um, um, something negative. How does that work for Mirabella? Well, if you accept, it's, it's what you have to do with the blatant beast. If you accept scorn and disdain, um, then what you're doing, and you turn the other cheek, which is essentially what she has to learn to do, um, that's ultimately what courtesy is. So there's so the bad form of courtesy is to say, I'm important because I'm from court. And who are, the, who are examples of the good form of courtesy in book six? Savage? Yeah, why? Because you assume that he's savage, so I wouldn't have any courtesy, but... And he, he's, he's not of noble stock, but it turns out that, that he acts as if he is of noble stock. Yeah, so, so true courtesy comes from inside, you could say, and takes the form of an indifference to your own nobility, an indifference to the question, are you noble or not? Um, it also takes the form, however, um, of accepting class rank and accepting, one, one of the most courteous things you can do is accept the higher rank of someone else, even if you feel that they don't deserve, even if it's manifest that they don't deserve to be ranked higher than you are. Um, you still accept their higher rank. So, there's, so what Spencer's trying to do, this is an issue that already comes up when it comes to justice and distributive versus retributive justice. Um, what Spencer wants to do is to say that courtesy is essentially a willingness to be treated unfairly um, because that unfair treatment um, means that you're not, um, you're not partial on your own behalf. 
um, a willingness to do thing to do more for others than you would ever demand that they do for you. Um, that willingness has a class aspect to it, which is that essentially um, lower classes are capable by the very nature of things of more courtesy than upper classes because if because the because naturally it turns out that courtesy can belong to any class and yet courtesy is to be, supposed to be a sign of being upper class so there's a way that lower class people can you know, on a meta level be higher class than upper class people it's sort of like the king's speech that is that um, have you seen it yet um, that is that um, the willingness to defer to your betters or it's actually like Gunga Din um, the willingness to defer to your betters when they're not really your betters but that's just how society is laid out um, gives you more access to courtesy um, than your betters can possibly have um, because it's their job to be deferred to rather than to defer, but that makes them less courteous. But there are ways around this. What is one way around um, being an upper-class person who wants to show deference? How does deference work in um, Book Six of the Fairy Queen among those who really are of, of aristocratic blood? Reaching out to those that are not Okay, reaching out to those not of aristocratic blood, like? Like the savage. Okay, like reaching out to the savage. The shepherds. The shepherds, good. Um, what makes Pastorella so good? Why do we like her so much? You can think, if you want, of Perdita and the Winter's Tale also. What makes them attractive? Or do you not think they are? I mean, she's not really a shepherdess. It's yeah. that princess in disguise thing. Yeah. But. But she's not complaining. No, I mean, she, she, yeah, she doesn't really have, a, like, there's nothing wrong about her, seemingly. Yeah, it's the opposite of the princess and the pea. That is, you don't find out that Pastorella is a princess because she can't abide a pea underneath um, 50, 50 mattresses because she's so sensitive. But rather, um, you would think that given her noble origin, um, living as she does as a shepherdess would, would just be, she'd be stunningly unable to do it. And yet she's perfectly able to do it, and she's perfectly happy doing it. So that what shows her natural courtesy is that, she, that nothing in her rebels against being a shepherdess. Another kind of story would have her rebelling against being a shepherdess, but nothing in her rebels against that. Julie? Um, in your definition of courtesy, I'm wondering if you can, uh, well, how to differentiate between courtesy and kindness, or friendship, as we saw in two books ago? You're wondering? Yeah. Um, friendship is a mode of equality, and friend, friends actually select their friends, and to be a friend is to be in a... Um, in, in, um, on the same level, on an equivalent level. Um, you're, you're not friends with everyone. That would be really bad. Courtesy is treating others like friends even when they're, your, when they're not your friends. Um, friendship gets a return 
out of friendship. It doesn't do it for a return, but, but it gets a return. There's reciprocity in friendship. Courtesy might be a pathway to friendship if both um, if you have courtesy on both sides. That's a pathway to friendship, and that is a pathway to love as well. And we see a lot of that in Book 6. But courtesy by itself is not friendship. I think it's worth looking, since it's um, clearly the best and also the most puzzling part of Book 6. Um, let's look at Canto 10, um, which is when... Um, Calidor um, comes in on um, Colin Clout. Um, so the first question is, um, and I think this is what Steve brought up, what is Calidor doing? Who now does follow the foul, blatant beast? This is page 988, if you have it. Who now does follow the foul, blatant beast? Whilst Caligore does follow that fair maid, unmindful of his vow and high behest, which by the fairy queen was on him laid, that he should never leave nor be delayed from chasing him till he had it achieved. But now, entrapped of love, which him betrayed, he mindeth more how he may be relieved with grace from her, whose love his heart had sore in grief. Um, so he's doing the wrong thing, and yet we don't quite feel that it's the wrong thing. Um, that's part of what pastoral does. So um, just to, since we're going to be looking at pastoral and licitous, I'll just tell you a little bit about it as a mode, um, which is that when poets affect to be shepherds, um, that goes way back to ancient times. Um, poets, the idea is that what a shepherd does is leads sheep around, and all the shepherd has to do is watch the sheep and keep the wolves at bay, and to pass the time, what a shepherd does is plays upon a reed. Um, so shepherds are way back in antiquity. Um, shepherds are, um, poets imagine themselves as shepherds, and um, stories in which shepherds are speaking poetically um, are stories that are called pastorals. The very anyone remember the very first line of the Fairy Queen? No, really. After all this time, it's still not in your mind. The first two lines: "Lo, I, the man whose muse Wilhelm did mask as time her taught in lowly shepherd's weeds." am now enforced a far unfitter task for trumpets stirred to change mine oaten reeds. So he says, I used to appear as a shepherd. And what he's talking about is one of um, his, one of Spencer's earlier books, The Great Shepherd's Calendar. And in The Shepherd's Calendar, shepherds have discussions about various things having to do with life and time and, and immortality and hope and fear and death and so on. Um, and they talk about it as shepherds. Now we return to that pastoral mode. Um, pastoral is often, um, as you'll see in Lycidas, a mode of elegy. That is, what will happen is one shepherd will say, I used to walk these fields with another shepherd, but now he's dead. And now I'm all alone and sad. And that goes all the way back to the lament for Bion. That is the, um, the original and founding pastoral elegy in Greek. Um, in ancient Greeks. Um, so elegy, pastoral elegy, is life is simple and should have remained the way it was, 
but now it's simpler still because the person who is here with me is now not with me. Um, pastoral without elegy, which is what you're getting in Book Six of the Fairy Queen and what you also get in uh, The Winter's Tale, is we don't have to be at court, which is backstabbing and terrible and everyone treats everyone else really, really badly. Here, among the fields, here with the sheep, um, here in the sun, here on this commune where we raise our own sheep and um, we get up with the sun and, and go to bed with the sun, that's living. Um, so that's what Calador stops to do. Yeah. yeah it's interesting, too, that, that Melby actually went to court and like tried it out, but then came back right. in the pastoral setting. Exactly. That's significant. Exactly. Um, so Melaby prefers... Who's Melaby, everyone? Pastorella's... Quote, dad, unquote. Um, yeah, he prefers... Um, and this, the, again, this is a standard trope for pastoral. He prefers to live simply as a shepherd than to go to the backstabbing areas of court. And now Calador is preferring the same thing. Um, so he's not chasing the blatant beast. And then one day... As he's walking around, um, uh, he comes to a place where Venus liked to go, and now go to stanza 10. Unto this place, when as the elfin knight approached, him seemed that the merry sound of a shrill pipe he playing heard on height, and many feet fast thumping the hollow ground that through the woods their echo did rebound. He nigher drew to wheat what mote it be, there he a troop of ladies dancing found full merrily and making glad full glee, and in the midst a shepherd piping he did see. And who is that shepherd? Colin Cloud, i.e. Spencer. He durst not enter into the open green for dread of them unwares to be descried for breaking of their dance if he were seen, but in the covert of the wood did bide, beholding all yet of them unespied. There he did see that pleased much his sight, that even he himself his eyes envied. And hundred naked maidens, lily white, all ranged in a ring and dancing in delight. So suddenly he's doing something really weird, which is that he's watching in secret. He's being a voyeur um, and watching in secret as Colin Clout plays to a hundred naked maidens dancing. I'm very much not like Guyon when he goes to the Bower of Bliss and is indifferent to similar sights, but somewhat like Britomart in the House of Buserain, watching from hiding this thing that's going on. And in the midst, there are the graces, the handmaids of Venus, and now go to stanza 16, um, who's right in the middle of them all. Um, we find out um, who makes the, the um, shepherd pipe so merrily. She was to wheat that jolly shepherd's lass, which piped there unto that merry route, that jolly shepherd which their pipe it was. Poor Colin Cloud, who knows not Colin Cloud. And then what does Calidor do? goes out there and it disappears. Yeah, he goes out there and destroys it. Um, so that's worth thinking about what's going on there. Why does Calador watch? Why does Calador interrupt? What's wrong with his interruption? Does he recover from his interruption? Is it possible to recover is from that? Is it courteous to be a voyeur? <laughs> is it courteous to be a voyeur, but is it courteous to show yourself? 
Um, if you see something you shouldn't see, what's what's the right thing to do? You have to deal with that every day. You know, people have have snot on their chins. What do you do about it? Um, that's a disdain. Not, disdain. <laughs> yeah, that's a minor version of this. Um, it's a very mysterious and powerful moment, um, and worth thinking about. Okay, um, for Wednesday. We're almost caught up, right, with our two weeks of use. So for Wednesday, what, since we've been talking about Passover, read Lycidas, Milton's Lycidas. Um, and we'll start talking about Milton on Wednesday. And you should also be reading Comus. That's uh, the, the original Milton reading you should be doing is Lycidas and Comus. And then we'll get to Paradise Lost uh, next week. Is our audience just doing a paper at the end? Yeah. Still, okay. Yes. <laughs>